0: Hello, everybody, and welcome. This is a panel that's being presented on the occasion of Reconciliation Week, and what a fantastic place to have it in the new law school. Um, We've got a fantastic panel of presenters who um, we'll introduce as they go along. For those of you who don't know me, my name's Linda Barwick. I'm the um, Associate Dean Research at Sydney Conservatorium of Music Where um, our Research Centre for Music Diversity uh, is located, which is co sponsoring this lecture. So, um, first of all, I'd like to introduce uh, Professor Jacqueline Troy. Jackie's going to do an acknowledgement of country. I think um, some of you here will have been um, uh, welcomed to country and smoked uh, at the flag-raising ceremony that we've just had so this is a follow-on from that. Thanks Jackie. Uh,
1: Thanks Linda. Uh, It's a great privilege to be here as part of this event tonight. We were very well welcomed I feel by Uncle Alan Madden um, who is a traditional owner for this area that we meet on, Gadigal Country, and also um, by Georgia who is also a Sydney person, um, Daruk, I believe, and um, so I feel that we've been welcomed in properly by the owners of this country. I'm not an owner of this country, but I did grow up here. And I'd just like to give a little acknowledgement um, in language. Uh, Many years ago I had the privilege of reconstructing the language of this area and I've now seen it over some decades grow back into the language that it is now. Not asleep, used every day by the people who um, own the language, the people, the Gadigal people and all the other groups within the Sydney area. Ngaia, Nganina, Ningagawa, Nganina, jaki. Ngaia Nyamichimitong, Snowy Mountains no. Ngaia Bayaba, Birong. Marinura. nalawayanya, Sydney University Group. So I'm saying to you, as you can see in the translation, that while I am a Snowy Mountains person, I... Um, acknowledge this beautiful country that we're fortunate to have Sydney University sitting on. Um, I love to be able to speak the language of this area. That is really all I can do is speak a very small amount, but there are fortunately lots of people who can hold out full conversations in this language, which uh, for roughly 100 years was believed to be completely asleep. And um, the last people speaking it right through were considered to be um, in the late 19th century. Uh, But now you can walk around the Sydney area, you can see signage in the language, you can go to public talks where people use the language and schools are teaching the language again. This is in Reconciliation Week, I think, a really remarkable thing. So do you want me to continue with my part of the presentation Linda or are we going to move to the other?
0: Um, and then we'll have the um, various other speakers. So could I just ask, to save the feedback, when you're not speaking, um, turn off your um, microphone. I'm just going to turn mine off now so, and leave the floor to Jackie. Thank you, Jackie. Okay.
1: Thank you. Well, um, as I mentioned, I did have the privilege of working on the language of the Sydney area as an undergraduate student, first of all, of the University of Sydney. Uh, my PhD thesis is actually about language contact and the, what happened when people came together after the British invaded this country, what happened linguistically. And one of the things that happened was that a, a language, a mixed language developed that I called New South Wales Pigeon and it spread across the country. There's no doubt that it is actually the, the basis for a lot of the so-called Creole languages. Indeed, one of them is known as Creole in the Northern Territory. Um, and also up in the Torres Straits there's a language and the language that developed around this area in Sydney had an influence right across Australia because of course people used it to communicate with each other. So I'm now going to recite to you as it's a musical event, I don't know how to sing this, but one of the things I came across when I was doing my research was a a corroboree song it was called in Irish and Wiradjuri, the language um, of the other side of the mountains and out well into the west, Widra- Wiradjuri is probably the biggest language of what we now call New South Wales, sort of central western language. And it goes, Riverme Mora, Morahola de Buriman, Morahola de Buriman, Riverme Mara, Morahola de Buriman. And when I first came across that, I thought, that is strange. <laughs> what is this? It's there's clearly the word mara for hand and you know. then there's all this other language and I happened to be studying with a man who was from Dublin at the time at the Research School of Pacific Studies in Canberra and he said, oh that looks like Irish and um, as so often happened even in the so-called colonial period, people used to think that the Irish who were speaking Irish sounded like Aboriginal people. Well. Pretty much every other language in the world doesn't sound like English. Um, when I was in Japan I can remember the Japanese saying to me that English-speaking people sound like they're hissing all the time and baring their teeth because we've got so many s- sounds, sibilant sounds, and Aboriginal languages don't and the Irish language doesn't so, or Irish languages. Anyway, he helped me analyze this piece and it was, give me your hand, Mara." so please give me your hand I'll take your hand, and then it goes, Morahola de Boriman. Boriman is a contact word meaning policeman. Morahola, because of, in Irish, Morahola de Boriman. So this was a little song about, it was a corroboree song that was described in this book, about look out, you know, white fella coming, you know, Boriman coming, policeman coming. Um, You know, so it's a song about conflict, it's a song about um, people negotiating the new spaces look out for the law, um, but also sort of having a bit of a joke and a bit of fun because it was put in the context of a corroboree, a kind of festival, a big dance, you know, people getting together. And non-Aboriginal people went to these things too. They were very popular in the colonial period. I don't think people realise how many non-Aboriginal people went along to corroborees as well and enjoyed the food, the song, the dance. They were big theatrical events. Um, So here is this sort of really interesting piece where, and it's the only thing I know that is actually in the colonial literature that's a mixture of another language and an Aboriginal language, um, just purely mixed like that. So I thought I'd share that with you and um, I'm not going to keep going on because we've got some wonderful young people on this panel tonight who um, really know this stuff in the music space. So I will um, thank you Linda for letting me share that bit of colonial history or whatever invasion history and yeah
0: thanks so much thanks so much Jackie uh, so now we um, move on to our next our next presenter um, who's Clint Bracknell who is has just recently become Dr Clint Bracknell um, <laughs> uh, who um, so he's one of our senior lecturer in the um, Sydney Conservatorium of Music. He's uh, directs our uh, new Bachelor of Contemporary Music program, and um, he's also done some fantastic research. He's going to tell us about now. Thanks, Clint. <laughs>
2: With a little bit of feedback accompanying me, in in the words in the words of the great West Australian songman Jimmy Chai, I'm a long way from my country, and it's been a long time since I've reappeared. And in the language that's my mum's language, Nungar language from the southwest of WA, um, I'd just like to acknowledge that I'm not from here. I'm an interloper, and a very grateful interloper to be um, having the great job of teaching students at Sydney Uni how to write pop songs and experimental stuff. And then in my spare time, um, try and be useful in this sort of space between research and revitalization and culture. Um, So yeah, I always make sure I bring my crew with me when I'm talking interstate. Um, So this is some of my family from back home in the southwest of WA. We've got that website up the top there that says woolaman.com. So I mentioned I'm talking in Noongar language at the start there, or singing in Noongar language. That's the language from the southwest of Western Australia. It's probably the largest Aboriginal language group in terms of uh, landmass and uh, people who, that's their heritage language. And um, that Woolaman thing, that's like a family name that means curlew. So it's like the Bushstone curlew is a fairly tall, skinny, shy bird, but it's got a bit of a loud, obnoxious voice, sort of like me. (laughs) Um, But anyway, I I started, you know, making this website for my crew that were involved in language revitalisation in about uh, 2010. I was a high school music teacher, wanted to be useful, and at the same time I was you know, trying to write songs and get them on the radio and this and that, and just thinking, well, what's my musical heritage? I know nothing of that, really. I'm playing around town and that, but, you know, what are, what are we building on here? And so there was this gap for me that I was interested in, and then there was also this rising tide of uh, language revitalization in community back home. So I was like, how can I be useful? I can do a website, I can record audio, I can edit audio. Um, and so that's how I got started, helping with language revitalization, which is very important in terms of identity because if you can go and talk in your heritage language, clearly that's something powerful and something important. Um, Can we go to the next slide, please, Linda? (laughs) Um, So yeah, when I was talking about Noongarra before, that's that little grey area down in the corner. Um, In terms of the largest Aboriginal language group in Australia, there's over 30,000 people that identify themselves as being Noongarra. Um, But in the 2011 Australian census, uh, under 370 people identified as speaking Noongarra language. That may mean because not a lot of Noongarra people do the census or take the census. I don't know, and we'll see what the next census says. Um, But for 30,000 down to under 400, that signals that language revitalisation is something that needs to continue rolling. Um, Can we go to the next slide, please, Linda? racing on through. Oh, you gave it all away now. <laughs> Alright. Um, so working with the Widdelman Noongar Language and Stories Project, which is what my sort of family crew have called what we do in terms of getting together um, with our senior people and some archival stuff and then workshopping in community and then gradually sharing things through doing going out to primary schools or putting out books. Um, In terms of doing that work, we sort of hit upon the fact that although we're all starting to feel good and do this language reclamation stuff, the younger people in the community weren't picking up the language as fast as we'd like through books and chalk and talk. So we started thinking, well, song would work. And my auntie Iris Woods said to me, well, all the young ones like to dance, so why don't you come up with some songs for us, because you're meant to be the muso. And being a bit unsure about how to do this, I thought, well, I'll need to go back into the archives and and make sure if I'm going to do this, I'm going to be able to do it right. I still don't feel like I'm in a position to be able to do it right, um, because there's so much really tricky stuff going on in terms of Noongar musical traditions, and those traditions haven't necessarily stopped Because Uncle Albert Knapp, in one of our workshops, after we started talking about song for a few workshops, came out with a couple of songs. So there's all this musical tradition that's sort of been a bit underground for a while. Academics wrote it off years and years and years ago, and it's been carried in the hearts and minds of our people. And now it's just starting to resurface, and it's really exciting, and I feel sort of privileged to just be be in the room when someone like Uncle Albert can, can sing. Um, can we... Oh, yeah, so sorry, can we go back? back? Yeah, I'm used to controlling my own PowerPoint. <laughs> this is freaking me out, Linda. Okay, so going back into the... I don't even know how to use this. I'm there on my computer usually. <laughs> going back into the archives, um, I got Uncle Albert singing for me, like, in a workshop a while ago. We've got some audio recordings that sort of started in about 1965... And then before that, you have this musical notation so it doesn't make any sense and it's like people are trying to write stuff for piano and I don't know what it's got to do with Nyungar music. And then you have all these lyrics that are written out strangely, in strange orthographies and um, you're looking through microfilm to try and figure out what's going on and um, we don't know how to sing them. But in working with people like Ani Roma Wimma who's one of the most long-standing Nyungar language teachers around, Um, we sort of picked words out of of this one, which um, there at the start, it sort of says it's a a Kaili song, a a song to be sung with boomerangs, which is nice musical information. And then we've got them talking about a mamang, which is a whale. You've got your koraburi, your um, heart path, something about a heart path going on there. And then we've got stuff about hanging, and it's something hanging there. And it's all a bit confusing until we linked it to a story that we'd done a picture book of, which... If I can go forward, is it going to work. Oh, I'm going backwards. Backwards and forwards and all around. I'm going to give it back because this... Oh, hey, it worked. Okay, so there's this story about a man travelling inside a whale and looking out through its eye and seeing birds hanging in the sky. Ah, oh, right. So suddenly these pieces of this puzzle start fitting back together. And it's all because of knowledge held by individuals. But when we get together and combine it, it's like Voltron. We're greater than the sum of our parts, you know? Um, Which is really exciting. Okay, And just to wrap up, um, when we start putting things together like this, putting song back into the equation, it can be really powerful. Me and some of my cousins and uncles and um, Pop Russell there went on a transect through Fitzgerald National Park recently, and we were singing a song that I heard from a tape in 1965 by a man uh, in South Australia who said, this is a Nyungar song. And I identified the words and thought, oh yeah, this is what this song's about, and we were following the locations of a story that um, Pop Russell's uh, dad told to a linguist in 1930 (laughs) about dogs turning into seals and jumping into the sea, over the fire. And the song was talking about the same thing. So we're driving along in a couple of troopies, singing this song and looking for landmarks that are in this story. And we managed to find them all. And I kind of think that the song might have had something to do with that. Similarly, we sung a song in a workshop um, that the last time it had been sung was maybe a decade or more ago. My uncle Jason Minitor recorded Pop Lomas Roberts singing this song on an Aboriginal oral history recording he was doing. So we got sort of the, the main chorus bit, sung it over and over and over, and this song was about the Australian bustard, the Krulli, uh, the bush turkey, endangered in our part of the world, OK? So we're singing this song in a workshop, feeling good. Music's a participatory sort of thing, makes everyone feel good. And we thought, yeah, that's great, we've done something we all went home. Then a few months later, we heard that those birds were returning to the area. So it just makes you think. Song's important in terms of identity and being able to present yourself to the world and associate with each other and communicate and participate and embody. But songs are also important in a broader sense to country and the world, the earth and the universe.
0: Could turn off your Sorry. Yeah. Um, So our next speaker, I'm delighted to introduce Jonathan Potskin, who's a PhD candidate here. And uh, he's going to be talking to us about Indigenous rap and global identities. So over to you.
3: Okay.
4: Um, Just... uh, good evening. Um... First, I would like to acknowledge the uh, traditional people, the Yorra and Gadigal people. And I also want to acknowledge um, the Aboriginal people that make this their home today. Um, they've been here for generations as well, and I think they deserve acknowledgement. And people that have lived here, like Jackie, who has shared the history of the Yorra people through her writings and through her research, has been amazing. Um, i been able to read a lot of her work lately in my research, so it's been great to sit here and sit here with Clint as well. And um, I watched him, watched your, um, speech on youtube you did for the school music and i got to watch you on youtube as well so i feel like i've met these people before Uh, no jackie but um so thank you for that and just to acknowledge the work that all indigenous people do for um for the people here in sydney and across this country and around the world Um, yeah Um, so first of all i just wanted to go over um, i'm doing my research on indigenous rap in Canada and Australia. So I'm looking at the two Indigenous groups and how they're using rap music and uh, I just put up some some comparisons that show the similarities between Indigenous people of Canada and the people of Australia and the, what really connects us is a lot of our history. As Indigenous people we face colonization and I think um, that really connects us in a way that creates a relationship on an international level. Um, I find that our Cultural values are similar, but they're really a lot different because our environments are a lot different. Um, but I find that the most important thing is to look at is the histories that we share are, have created the realities that the youth face today in both countries. And stats are very similar in almost every single area of um, of this of society. So that was kind of what I put up here. Sorry, just trying to make it through here. But um, yes, I from indigenous youth. Okay, I just put up quotes to go with um, what I want to talk about, so just to give you guys a visual. But um, Indigenous youth are the fastest growing populations in Canada and in Australia. Uh, indigenous youth make up about 53% of the Aboriginal population in Canada, and they make up 57% of the population, Indigenous population here in Australia, and the other one was Canada, if I said Australia. Anyways, <laughs> I'm getting confused between the countries, but with the two countries, the Indigenous youth population make up the majority of who we are as Indigenous people. And I'm finding that there's a lack of research when it comes to Indigenous youth, because we are focused on revitalizing language and culture from the older generations before they passed. So I like acknowledge the work that's being done with traditional um, music because it's been influenced onto the Indigenous youth today. But our youth today are also Part of a more global movement with social media, our youth are no longer in local or um, local communities and shut out from the rest of the world. We partake in just as much of the world as everyone else does in, in modern society, and today's youth are more uh, more academic and they're also more political when it comes to um, movements, social movements around the world. So, um, yeah, I just wanted to talk a little bit about Idle No More in Canada. It was a process that was started from. For women, but it was the youth that continued on to this movement with Idle No More, and it was a huge movement that went across the, um, the world globally amongst Indigenous people. But in Canada alone, it was Indigenous and non-Indigenous people that were supporting environmental laws that were being um, portrayed by the government. Um, yeah. So next. Okay. So, um, and so I want to focus a little bit about the Indigenous youth here in Australia. Um, sorry, you already talked about this? Okay um, yeah, so a lot of the the rates are, are similar when it comes to the two countries, and especially with um, child protection laws and youth in foster care. So a lot of my research when I'm looking at the youth is a disconnect from community, and you find that in rap music, you find that there's a huge urban population of youth that grew up without family and community knowledge because of the foster care system, so I was looking at this process in both countries, where in each every in every state, province, and territory, um, Indigenous youth make up over 50% of the population within foster care and child protection services. So, uh, when it comes to rap music, the children really know a lot about institutionalization in this in in the present generation of Indigenous youth, and one thing that we'll find with rap music is the reality that the youth are playing in today's society and how they're reclaiming their Aboriginal cultures um, through rap music. And when it comes to rap music, you find that there's an infusion of traditional music and language revitalization that's happening within the music. Um, A lot of language is being used in Indigenous rap. Um, Traditional tools are being used like our drums, um, the clapping sticks here, you'll find the didgeridoo, you'll find the music within Indigenous rap. So, the connection between the two two, um, organize, or two people in Canada and Australia, that we wanted to focus on because in my master's, I came here and did my master's at ANU, and I was able to watch um, Last Connection perform. And it was through their rap music that I realized that the situation that Indigenous youth are facing here was the same as back home, because those were the raps that my cousins were rapping about, and the similarities were so. There was a lot of similarities. Sorry, I'm just a little bit. Curious. Um, okay. Thanks. It's good to have one of my supervisors up here. <laughs> um, so when it comes to rap and hip-hop culture, um, I want to look at the similarities between the indigenous youth and um, rap and hip-hop culture. So hip-hop culture is a culture and rap is the music that comes out of the culture of hip-hop. Um, and so it's a huge culture. Then, a lot of research that's been done on Indigenous youth and hip-hop music <clears throat> has included all, all the music, and when you looked at when I looked at rap music specifically, and when it came out of the when it came out of America in the 80s and 90s, it was about resistance and it was about a voice for um, Black Americans and the problems that they were facing as urban individuals. And when I looked at the when I looked at the words, it was eth- ethno Is that How you say it?
3: Otto <laughs> <laughs> has no graphic, that's what I was trying to say. <laughs> yeah.
4: um, but it tells the story of the people at that time. And eventually rap music became more normalized around the world. Um, but Indigenous youth are still at that point where rap was at the community level. And the rap is still there within the community level. It's not as focused as internationally. Um, we have more pop rap music that goes internationally. But there are still community movements, but the Indigenous youth culture has taken on this culture of rap music, and it comes from our sense of sharing oral history, we're oral history people, and all our music has come from our daily lives in the past, so when you look at a lot of the music that's been done traditionally, it was about their lives back then, and so it's about creating a timeline where Indigenous people are no longer seen as a deficit for what we're losing from our traditional knowledge, but how we're living our lives today, because that's what the music of the past was about. When I look at research from the past about my people, the Cree people back home, the, drum, the drumming and the singing, it was them telling the story of when they went out hunting. The dancing was the acting of the hunt. And that's what rap music is to us today, to young Aboriginal peoples, them telling their story through, through dance, they're telling their story through their daily lives. And Indigenous youth here and, I'm almost done my time today. okay. Um, so when it comes to Indigenous youth and globalization, I just really want to look at um, recognizing the, the individual nations when it comes down to it. When we look at globalization, we're always focused on the local part of globalization, how it leads up to an international level. And I wanted to respect everybody's identities. Um, one of the big controversies when it comes to looking at Indigenous people internationally is a lot of us don't want to be considered to be into a small group or um, our small groups to be into a large group, because we're scared to lose our individuality as indi- Indigenous people. And I find that there's a way through a global network of Indigenous communities that now we're able to keep our identities and still have an Indigenous identity internationally. Um, yeah, so like I just want to look at the difference between Canada. We have 525 nations in Canada and there's over 500 nations here, and there's over 200 language groups in Canada, and there's over 200 language groups in Australia. So showing that, even amongst that, nationally, we've been able to connect as Indigenous people from national policies, and now we're looking at the UN, and we're creating a more global perspective of who we are as Indigenous people, I would (laughs) think, hopefully. Um, But I'm trying to get through this really fast. Next is my research, right? Yes. Okay, I only have, maybe I'll skip over it because it's 30 seconds. Okay. (laughs) Um, My research part will go into another 10 minutes of talking. Um, But I just wanted to look at, um, just talk, maybe I'll just talk a little bit about research. Um, Right now I'm just onto my paradigm of thought and I was discussing it with um, my supervisor, Katrina, who's out here, Um, is our ontology. So right now I'm looking at ontologies, just go a little bit into my researches. Right now I'm looking at ontologies of um, Indigenous peoples in Canada and here, and I'm looking at creation stories to create the first voice and to create our worldviews. And looking at the worldviews of Indigenous people in Canada and here and creating the creation stories, you see how much we are connected um, through our lands and through our environments and how our languages are connected. And yeah, so I just wanted to touch on that really quick. But um, yeah, sorry. Oh, <laughs> um, yeah, Louis Rael is one of our um, traditional leaders back in Canada, and this was one of the quotes that um, he said before he um, was hanged for treason in Canada. You know, it was, our people will sleep for 100 years, but when they awake, they'll be the artists who will give them their spirit back. And that's what I follow when I do my research with Indigenous youth right now, is looking at this man of the past and knowing that, um, hoping that this comes true.
0: So our last speaker is Jessie Lloyd, um, and I believe she's going to um, talk a bit about some of her research, and then we're going to have some music.
5: Hi, I'll, I'll declare that I'm not really a, a researcher. I'm just a muso out and about, uh, black tracking. <laughs> no, what I um, uh, my thing is called Mission Songs Project. Um, so you'll have to, um, excuse me to try and make it concise and articulate. Um, basically, Mission Songs Project is a research project that I've taken on to research the first Indigenous contemporary music, um, uh, by uh, Indigenous Australians from 1900 to 1999. So it's funny that you've got the 100 years up there. But really, I'm looking at stuff probably from the 20s to the 70s, um, the, uh, the Why I decided to do this was because um, as a musician and as a, as a cultural practitioner working with um, other Indigenous artists there was, there was a song that I was taught by my family uh, which we'll sing later and um, I was very inspired by it and when I heard my aunties were singing it and they sing it in their sort of like three part harmony gospel style. Um, but my nana also used to sing it in, in a more older style because she was, you know, from the 30s and the 40s. Um, and it was a song uh, from Palm Island in North Queensland, where my family's from. And um, I thought, you know, this is intergenerational, and in this song, and it's not in, in a traditional language, and it's not, um, you know, of sort of traditional cultural um, purpose, but it's relevant to my nana who was stolen genera- generation to the context of you know, what happened on Palm Island. And, and so there's three or four generations here of this song. And I'm thinking, that's cultural tradition. That's oral tradition. Um, and I figured, well, if that's what happened with my family, I reckon there's a lot of other people and other communities got these same songs. And lovely hearing your story, brother, because it's the same thing. So Mission Songs Project has inspired me to go out and about and um, go song treasure hunting and looking for old songs, because as an Indigenous musician, I sing in English and I play on a, on a Western instrument, the guitar or whatever it may be. And sometimes when I'm doing a gig, it might, I might not be authentic enough for some people when they want Indigenous, you know, music. <laughs> I don't know if anybody else gets that, but I tell you what, I've had some strange gig requests. Are you coming in native attire? No. <laughs> this is native attire. <laughs> Because I'm wearing it. (laughs) Um, Anyway, I digress. What inspired me as an artist and as a musician? I listened to things like um, No Fixed Address, Coloured Stone, um, The Mill Sisters from Torres Straits, Pigram Brothers. My dad, Joe Guy, is a very well-known singer-songwriter. He inspired a lot of um, people as as well. And the song you may have seen, Yillol. That was his. Um, And my thought was, well, when all these fellows were young, what inspired them? What made them pick up the guitar in the 50s and the 60s? You know, who were they looking up to in terms of um, Indigenous songs that were inspiring them to write about land rights, that were inspiring them to, to write about how we have survived? And so the Mission Songs Project kind of does that because... Well, that's what I'm looking to because the mission or the Aboriginal settlements or the reserves is where everyone was relocated. Um, so that's what I'm trying to do. It's, as you can see, it's hard for me to put it nicely. But what I, what my my family is my inspiration, and I think I've got a photo. Did I? No, I didn't put it in. I've got a yellow backdrop for my story. <laughs> uh, I, I, I basically approached the project in three areas: um, research and collection. I've been traveling around Australia here and there for the last year just looking for old songs and I'll talk to old people or young people or whoever and um, cruise around and so far I've probably got about 40 songs, 13 of which I'm working with um, with two deadly musicians over there, Monica Waitman and Robert Champion and um, first place I went was to Canberra, National Library iAccess National Film and Sound Archive. What have you got on file, archived in terms of early contemporary Indigenous songs? Not much. A lot of traditional stuff. I'm not a formal researcher anyway, so I might not have been looking properly, but beside the point I couldn't find it, so um, the, um, so I went to travel around and I visited um, uh, people, I went up to Palm Island, Yarraba, uh, Torres Straits, so I went down to Tasmania, I went to uh, South Queensland, North New South Wales, uh, I went to Darwin, I went to Broome, and that's as far as I've got so far in the last year. And I found all these songs, and it's, they tell stories of um, days back on the mission days or days back on the settlement or the reserves. And they're inter- interesting, but they also have behind them the, the, uh, the, sto- the situation of what was happening back then, the Stolen Generation, the war... The First War, the Second World War, um, displacement because this camp got shut down and everyone had to go to this camp. Or, um, you know, how black were working in the, as stockmen or working on the pearl luggers. It's, you know, it's massive because Australia is, is, is massive. I approach it in three areas. Research and collection, performance and presentation, which is, you know, the purpose here is to keep singing these songs, cultural tradition. The last four or five generations have been singing it. It's all underground, as you said, just because nobody's ever bothered to record it or uh, have value in it. Um, and the third area is recording, transcribing and archiving. Um, that's how I'm trying to do it. Um, this Mission Songs project is, uh, is important because it provides evidence, it provides evidence of cultural continuation from traditional to the modern. Somebody says to me, you're not authentic. You know, and somebody in a lap lap painted up is, well, why? Here's the evidence. Here's 100 years where the songs showing that the traditional lingo that they were singing back back then is exactly the same as what I'm doing now. It's oral tradition, it's songlines, and it's relevant. Culture has to be relevant to our life. Otherwise, we're just replicating, we are reenacting. And as an artist, I don't want to reenact and pretend, you know, to be something that I'm not, or, you know, I've got to represent my family. It's the least I can do. and... Mission was a part of it um, the um, the other thing that I'm trying to do with this um, mission songs is 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 share them publicly I'm committed to sharing these songs because they're contemporary they're not traditional um, to whoever I'll work it uh, with the school choir or um, teaching at VCA in Melbourne or whatever and if somebody wants to sing the song sing the song you, you want to Show somebody else? Show somebody else. Because we've, our choirs all around Australia, black and white, need to learn more Indigenous songs beyond In Our Name. Um, because that's all, you know, and, every, you know, and this, these are songs about, um, you know, a song about the Stolen Generation. You let, let, let the Aussie kids sing it, you know? There's no shame in it, and this is resilience. Um, my goal is to make these mission songs Australian classics, just like Waltzing Matilda. Um, I don't think Australia, I think Australia, you know, can um, brave up and, and, and acknowledge the history and, um, and own these songs, you know, as, as Australians. I think these are part of the Australian story. And um, I think it's, um, it's important for me to share it. That's one of the goals. Um, I've got my notes here. The other thing, too, is it's important for me that the Mission Songs Project is is done by followers, so you know it's us um uh, sharing from a, in our way from our perspective rather than um uh, uh you know what i mean Self, uh, self-empowerment i suppose we're as opposed to there's a government policy and that needs to do that because this thinks it's the right thing to do and then everybody just acts it out and no, up this is just our way we do it our way this is our stories will tell tell it how it is. How am I going for time? Because I'm not even looking. Oh, five minutes, okay. I thought I had ten, but anyway. Oh, well there you go. On that note, I apologise for being a scatterbrain because um, yeah, I just it's, it really is massive, as you can imagine. But it's important and this song that we're going to sing, I'll invite uh, Robert and Monica to come up here, if I can. Monica, I can see you there getting the feet. I'll invite you. and as Robert. Go on, there he is. We're going to do a song. This will give you an example of what I'm talking about. This is a song called The Irex. Now, the Irex is the name of a boat that used to sail from the mainland of Queensland over to Palm Island, probably from the 1920s to the 30s, maybe early 40s. And it was the boat that used to sail the Stolen Generation children over to Palm Island. Back in those days, that was reality. It was policy, um, and this is a song that the parents used to sing to the children as they were going. So it's not a, a past tense song like uh, "took the children away" or, or "brown skin baby." This is actually what they sang uh, firsthand, and it's a good example of of musical time travel to take you back right there. And this is the power of the Mission Songs Project, where. It's nothing to be ashamed of. It's about this is what happened and it's real and it's a human experience that we can all relate to. Um, You guys want to come over this side? Yeah. Uh, But, you know, it also wasn't about the stolen generation children. Everybody was displaced. So it wasn't only kids on this boat. There was um, adults, families. But anyway, we're going to sing this song. Sorry, I was talking really fast then. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you, Monica and Robert.
0: Thanks. Thanks very much, Monica and Robert and Jessie. That was, that was great. And um, just before we move on to invite questions, I'd just like to say that, from my point of view, you are a researcher. What you have laid out there is a one hell of a research project, so congratulations. Um, and keep keep doing it. <laughs> okay, so um, we've got we've got um, about ten minutes or so for questions. So please, we have a question right away. Not a question. It's
1: a com- comment. I just want to say that you're also very articulate. <laughs>
0: I just ask whoever's speaking, just turn your microphone on and off so we don't get the feedback problem.
6: Uh, I'd just like to ask our Canadian friend, uh, did did the British utilise Canada as as a convict uh, uh, depository? Uh, Because they, uh, you know, after Captain Cook came here, the American... uh, rebellion took place so, so America got cancelled as far as a, a place where they could ship all their convicts. I don't know whether they were ship, shipping them to Canada as well.
4: It was, it was minor. Um, our history starts in 1492 with North America So, but that time was the fur trade. When we talk about imperialism and colonisation, we were a part of the imperialistic world at one time for um, about 300 years prior to what colonisation was, was colonization was the policies that came in from a government. So, previous to that, we had working relationships through the fur trade um, with non-indigenous people in the country, so our is a little bit different where it was more of a trade previous to colonization than it was finding a land and um, automatically claiming it from the start. Um, Our countries were sold, um, they were claimed by companies previously. So, our convict history is very minor compared to
7: um, my question is for Jonathan as well. I think uh, your project is uh, absolutely exciting. I think it's uh, about time people started to look at the relationship between hip hop culture and uh, Indigenous resistance. Uh, in, uh, a lot of work has already been done, but I think uh, looking at it on, on a transnational level is really important. So, my question is about transnationalism and cross cultural interaction. In 2009, 2010, 2011, there were a lot of uprisings in the Middle East and North Africa, and hip-hop was a a driving force behind a lot of the youth movements there that uh, contributed to overthrowing dictators, but also as a way of um, responding to the legacy of colonialism. Uh, And that couldn't have happened without the diaspora, so people who had lived outside of their... Mm -hmm. Their um, home countries or uh, were born abroad uh, as a result of migration and, and went back and contributed to the development of things such as hip-hop culture in the Middle East and North Africa. Uh, here in Australia, we have people such as Monkey Muck, who, who actually grew up in, the, um, in Bankstown, in the southwestern suburbs, and uh, interacted with a lot of people from Middle Eastern descent and uh, established... Southwest Syndicate and, and, you know, there were a lot of cross-cultural interactions between people from different backgrounds. So my question is that uh, as a form of resistance for Indigenous people, um, hip-hop is important. What about cross-cultural interaction, collaboration and solidarity? What are your thoughts on that?
4: Uh, When it comes to the regular, not actually the regular, but the hip-hop community in general or as international Indigenous people?
7: I think in in terms of uh, resistance, in terms of protest uh, activism, uh, what what's the potential for hip hop in terms of uh, indigenous non-indigenous oh, solidarity?
4: I think well, it's huge because hip hop is a culture of its own, and it creates that common boundary and that commonness between people. So I know growing up in the communities that I grew up with in in Canada, it was us minority groups that were that grew up in the ghettos together. So um, I didn't, I didn't grow up with the same love for rap music as say, my brothers did, um, but I grew up with rap music in my life, and it was through, but it was through living in those communities that we were all multicultural. So as much as we have Indigenous rap that forms our history and our cultures, right next door were African immigrants to us that created their own African hip-hop and rap music for our city. And um, there's a lot of cross-cultural, like we were always working together as minority groups. As much as we were separate, we were also together. Um, but a lot of that comes through like multicultural programs that were set up in Canada for indigenous youth and youth of uh, um, recent migrations. So there's a lot of connection. Um, and a lot of the rappers that are out there are usually of mixed descent. Um, there's one rapper that's really huge in America. Her name is Angel Hayes and she's of Black American descent and of Cherokee descent. So she she really br- brings that bridge, and she's actually very popular in America in mainstream music, but she brings the, the identity of both of her histories and her people into her music. So you hear you hear her history as an, as an American Native person, but you also hear her history as a Black person who's experienced America in that way as well. So you, you often hear, even though it's indigenous rap specific, you'll hear other cultures influence because we all have Different DNA. We all have different um, parents, different lineages. Uh, you'll also you'll hear a lot of different rap music that incorporates a lot of people's other histories that come with them as well. I
8: think we've got another question. Hi, um, thank you, Jonathan. Um, firstly, I'd like to thank everyone in the panel. I'm very honored to be in the presence of such amazing people. Um, Um, Jessie, you made me cry, sister girl. Not good. (laughs) Um, Also, my question is to John. I'm so sorry. Um, More so, I think it's uh, more so a summary um, because when you actually discussed that you were going to be doing rap and Indigenous people, I found it exciting because my older brother is someone that, looking at our own issues that we faced in Australia... Um, one thing that got us through in the 80s, and it was hard, late 80s to early 90s, was our oppression. Before we got self-determination, we it was crap. And before we had civil rights, we were running tie to tie with America, with South Africa and everyone. Somehow we tipped it over the line. I don't know how we did it. But going forward, uh, my brother very much grabbed onto rap music, something that got him through Public Enemy and NWA all the way, um, yeah. you know. <laughs> so um, I'm really excited to the fact of Australians uh, taking on to rap music because I always felt it was something that we could do and to also hear that a Canadian audience um, are picking it up because I thought that that was something that we could... Um, the four countries: South Africa, or Africa, America, or Canada, and Australia. Because basically, if you have a look at our history, um, it basically entails some form of oppression through a greater force. So, but I'd just like to say thank you for your presentation, and Sister Gold Jackie. And I'd actually like to know more so about the Nunga. History as well, and thank you so much. I'm just going to pass the mic or drop it.
6: Yes. <laughs> I noticed that there was no mention of robberies, and uh, I spent quite a long time practising law in the Northern Territory in the Top End, and acted for the uh, g- g- um, oh, the, the people in Arnhem Land, the Gurindjis. And um, I think that it would be extremely valuable if you researched and documented uh, the nature of corroborees. And I think it's one area where um, non-Indigenous Australians might join in.
5: Can I respond? Thank you. I think um, Blackfellas still do corroboree in many places all around Australia, and quite differently because we are all multi- Australia Aboriginal people and Torres Strait people. We're already multicultural, and um, I've seen some uh, deadly corroborees down there in Melbourne at some gigs and the festivals, and you know they're doing hip hop, and to me that's you know just as cultural as anywhere else. Um, I think it's awesome. Um, you know, I think the question is: is what is the purpose of of, of our culture? What is the purpose of a, a, a corroboree? If we're going to be singing it and and dancing it, it's got to be relevant. It's got to be relevant to me and you. And it doesn't, you know, like I said, we, we don't have to reenact anymore. You know, I, I don't live in the bush. I live in Melbourne CBD. And it's awesome. Um, and the my you know my song and what I ever do is, is relevant to that because that. Is modern Ab- Aboriginality, and I'm not ashamed of modern, not modern Aboriginality. It is what it is, um, and I think you know it's awesome that mob all around Australia have their own way of culturally expressing their lifestyle and their values and, and their music and their song and their dance, um, as long as it's um, you know who they are and what they want to do, as opposed to um, doing something that doesn't reflect them.
0: Anyone else want to say something
1: about that? Uh, no. Magic, but, uh, well, I did mention the corroboree, actually. That was what my little bit was about. But, and, in fact, in the early colonial period, you're quite right, people went to corroborees, because, actually, the word comes from this area, Karibara, and it literally just means to sing and dance. Literally, really, it was described in the early records as dancing, but also this kind of thing. In fact, this is a corroboree from a Sydney point of view, sitting around, spin a yarn, eat something, have a few drinks, and talk, and, and have a song. I sort of started dancing along with the style, you know, but, um So, in, a f- in fact, I think what Sydney University is now is a giant corroboree. Yeah.
4: yeah. OK. <laughs> um, just let you know, I, I do know that there's a lot of research being done in that area. Uh, I'm doing a auditing a class at the Conservatory of Music on ethnography and music, and we are getting ethnographies on Karabries and on that information from the Northern Territory, so, and I think Linda has done some work up there, haven't you? Yeah.
0: Maybe I can just um, say something on behalf of um, some of us who are not Indigenous who've who've actually done some, done some um, work over the years with, with Indigenous people in a number of different areas. And wherever I've gone, the music that's being performed is what, is what I'm interested in. I'm interested in music, contemporary music, music make that's meaning-making now. And that's the, um, you know, in some places... Traditional songs that have been handed down for many, many centuries are an integral part of who people are and how they want to express themselves. Uh, and they can sit alongside rap music, um, other sorts of church songs, lots of other sorts of things. I mean, we all have eclectic um, tastes. And, um, you know, it's, uh, I think, you know, in, traditional music is just as much contemporary music. Um, and but that's all that we can actually know is contemporary music and con- the meanings of music now, uh, because that's this is who we are, this is where we are. We've got to listen, we've got to learn, we've got to talk together. Um,
8: I went to a funeral not long ago, which was a pretty famous woman called Annie Isabel Coe. I went to her funeral in Kara. She had probably one of the best corrobories I've ever seen, and that was only about a year and a so ago. It was deadly. Can
1: I just say so I was just going to make a comment. Um, I you were talking before and asking Jonathan about the transnational collaborations. When we uh, Katrina and I went along to a concert, we doing fieldwork, of course. Um, <laughs> To see a tribe called Red, you should all Google that band, they're just spectacular. But anyway, um, it was interesting because their concert was opened with a smoking ceremony, hey? and um, all the fellows from Sydney were engaging with it. So it was, it was very interesting because there was this um, very sort of, I guess, traditional, uh, You like know, we had the smoking ceremony to, for the flag raising today, so a practice that we've been doing probably for tens of thousands of years. Um, to make people feel safe, to be purified. You know, a lot of people use smoke all around the world. In fact, you were very comfortable with that because it's typical practice in um, Canada, North America, to burn sage, yeah? And so um, that started the concert. So I don't know that there's too many, I guess, contemporary music concerts that start with something like a... So that's, a, to me, a feature of what's going on with um, indigenous hip hop indigenous hip-hop movement and the rap culture and uh, I think they did they do electric powwow as well do they so that which is another sort of version of um, I guess this hip-hop universe Um, although friends of mine in Canada say that that's more a kind of disco kind of (laughs) derived thing but but whatever the bottom line is that people the really interesting I think I think with indigenous practice and I'd be interested to know if that goes on with North African and Middle East and practice is that you get this bringing together a very traditional forms with uh, these extremely contemporary forms that actually are derived from very traditional forms um, brought to North America by um, people who are African slaves. So it's kind of doing a, a world tour. Uh,
6: I've been captivated all evening by the, by the uh, Aboriginal man who's on the slide uh, and also on the flyer that... Um that that's put out for this evening. Uh, he's quite well dressed for the environment that that he appears to be in, and he's playing a piano accordion, which is not a, a, a <laughs> at all any traditional instrument. Um, I, I'm I'm uh, interested if there's any. Who is he, and is there any story behind who he is?
2: Yeah, sorry, that was uh, me. That said we should use this photo because it's... Oh, not, we haven't got the photo up at the moment, but it's That's one of my... So up. It's one of my f- favourite photos. Just looking up the details to make sure I get it right. And this is just me going off the State Library of Western Australia website, but um, that man is Mr. Ron Williams, um, who... And the photo was taken, I think, at uh, Cunderley in WA. Um, and he also lived in Esperance. He's got a whole heap of children in Western Australia. And um, he was really well-known for his uh, community leadership and his songs. Like, I think when this um, poster for this event went out, um, Uncle Lenny Collard back in Perth said, oh, I remember him and I remember (laughs) hearing him sing, you know, when I was a kid. Um, So he's a really well-known man and and highly respected um, right throughout WA. And um, it's it's just a gorgeous, gorgeous photograph. Um, Just let me... Double check. <laughs> um, it doesn't have a date. I'd, I'd imagine it'd be um, 1950s. Oh no, uh, it says 1970 here. Looks a bit looks a bit older than that. Oh no, 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 that's wrong. That's it'd be yeah, be before the 50s. Mm-hmm. Yeah.
0: OK, I've got the... Uh, but
2: sorry, the um, State Library of Western Australia would have all more information, so if you look up State Library of Western Australia um, Storylines Project, my colleague um, Damien Webb, who's the Aboriginal um, Liaison Officer there, has been running that project, project for a while. Sorry.
0: So um, part of the reason that, that um, I love that photo and that we, we uh, all agreed that it was a good one to use is because it just opens up so many questions about the, you know, the role of environment, the resources you've got available, um, what you what your passion is in life. And uh, I think that, um, you know, music is always, in every society that we know of, intimately tied up with identity. Uh, and part of the reason that we wanted to have this discussion today is because a lot of people, when they think about Indigenous music, think that it's all past or that we don't know anything about it or we can't know about it because it's too private Um, so i'm really grateful to um, the speakers today for sharing their ideas and for um, foregrounding some really important um, ideas that we can take forward and um, i particularly like to thank once again jesse and robert and monica for their beautiful song So um, please join me in thanking all the panellists.